So this week's Parsha is Parsha's Yisro. Yisro is the second of five Parshos that are named after people. We had Noah, of course, in Genesis. In the book of Numbers, we'll see three Parshas named after three individuals. And Yisro, we actually met earlier in the story, he was Moshe's father-in-law, and he used to live in Egypt, and he actually moved out of Egypt. If you remember, he was the one who pilfered the uh, staff from the coffers of the museums of, of Egypt. He went to live in Midian. Moshe met his daughters and married Zipporah. And now he's still in Midian, and the story begins that he hears, Yisro hears, everything that happened, that the Almighty did to Moshe and to the Jewish people, and took him out of the land of Egypt. So all the miracles, all the fanfare made its way to Yisro, and the story goes that he's going to come and be inspired to come join the Jewish people, and eventually he's actually going to convert and join the Jewish people entirely. So that's the, that, that's the story. Now, it's, the, the, it's interesting that we look at where it's placed here. So last week we had the Exodus and the splitting of the sea, and the story ended last week with the arrival of Amalek and the Jewish people smiting them. This week's parsha is going to have, we know 50 days after the Exodus, they end up at Mount Sinai. Well, actually, they end up there 44 days after the Exodus. They go to Mount Sinai, and they have the Ten Commandments, and that's the end of this week's parsha. And in between of the Exodus and uh, the Ten Commandments, we have this story placed, in, interpolated into it, of Yisro arriving, and he's going to be like this uh, the guy from corporate who comes and wants to, wants to institute some cost-saving measures, and he's going to come up with this idea of creating this hierarchy of judicial system. And it's really strange uh, the way it's actually placed in here. Moreover, uh, the story is going to tell that Yisro is going to wake up. The first one, Yisro arrives, make a big party, celebrate his coming, Moshe's father-in-law, make a huge party. Uh, and then the next day, he's going to wake up, and Moshe, from morning to night, is going to be answering people's questions because Moshe is the rabbi, and he and people want to know how to behave, and they're just you know been Jews for a couple of days. And they want to know how to, you know, with the, all the laws. It's, it's, it's like, uh, it's complicated laws and Moshe has the answers. So from morning to night, he's answering questions. And Yisro points out the inefficiencies and, uh, he tells him, well, why don't you hire some lieutenants and, 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 and captains and every 10 people should have one leader and every 50 people and every 100 people, and every 1,000 people, <laughs> etc. That way, uh, the easy questions could be answered by the lower court, so to speak, and only the really hard questions will come to you, and they institute that. That's the story. Uh, but what's interesting here is that we know the Jewish people have not yet received the Torah. They have not yet had the Mount Sinai experience. And Moshe's already answering tons of questions. But there's, just, there's a whole debate here amongst the commentaries. When exactly did Yisro arrive? Did it arrive before the Sinai experience, as the narrative reads plainly, because the Sinai experience happens afterwards? Or did it arrive afterwards? But as we know, and we've spoken about this before, but the Torah is not written necessarily in chronological order. It's written in a conceptual order to bring out the lessons. And therefore, the Torah, according to the opinion that says that Yisra came after the Sinai experience, that would indicate the Torah decided that it's really critical to tell the story of Yisra before the Sinai experience, even though it happened 
afterwards. So what that means is, is that the Torah is not necessarily chronological, but it will not alter the chronology unless there's an important lesson to be derived. So the question is, what is this whole story? Yisro comes in and, you know, and he sees an inefficient system. He sees people asking all the questions to Moshe. And he says, oh, I have some advice. Why don't you hire some underlings? Great. Fine. And we have to tell you this whole story before this, the, the Sinai experience. So my grandfather used to always talk about this, this particular episode. Because the, the first words is that Yisro, the minister of Midian, the father of Moshe, he heard everything that happened to the Jewish people. Now the word vayishmat, shomer, to hear, it's the same word that we have in our shema. And what this means is not to just have auditory notes from the world bounce in your eardrums. What this means is that he, he heard, but did his neighbor hear as well? How did he hear? Someone, he got the information, right? So it wasn't just Yisro who heard. It was everyone heard. But it, it seems that when the Torah is describing the word Vayishma, to hear, to, to listen, to hearken, it means to be impacted by what you encounter. When we say Shema Yisrael, uh, just to hear or believe or know that the Almighty exists, that's not sufficient. It means to take this to heart and to be motivated to act upon it. If someone just knows God exists, okay, fine, let me check a certain box in a mental checklist. That's not what the Torah wants. The Torah wants it to penetrate into our heart, into our behavior, into our thoughts, into our actions, into the entirety of our existence. The fabric of who we are should be impacted by the knowledge of God. Yisro, he heard, and he decided to act upon it. My grandfather used to always, he said this all the time, he said, imagine you were in Midian, and he got a copy of the Midian Times. And the first cover page, Jews have miraculous exodus from Egypt, and it describes the ten plates, and Pharaoh being humbled repeatedly, death of the firstborn, surrounded by the sea, and the sea splits, and it's a sensational story, unbelievable. So you read it like, you know, you're, you're smoking your cigar, and what is what an amazing story, wow, fantastic, and you go into the sports section, right? That's what people would typically do. Yisro, he heard. What that means is, is that the information didn't just, didn't just, he didn't just absorb it and read it and be entertained and move on. He heard it to the degree that it kind of stirred up his soul and motivate, motivated him to take action upon what he learned. This is an ty- entirely different way of experiencing information. And this, as an aside, by the way, is the core aspect of Musar, is for someone to be inspired to change. Because we're kind of on this trajectory in life, and how we kind of get onto our own trajectory, you know, that's very often impacted by circumstances and family and things that happened. But very often, we kind of, we're we're in our path, you know, if someone grows up in a certain way, it's very likely to end up in a, you know, within a certain range. There's the few people who are motivated by what they encounter in the world to really decide to take life seriously, to hear, so to speak, and to change. And Yisro, think about it. Yisro, is, we, we, we tell you his pedigree here. He is the priest of Midian. What does that mean? It means he has a spiritual standing in Midian. It wasn't like he was a follower. He was a leader. What does he have to do? He has to get up, get up to his congregation and say, 
Uh, behold, I am resigning. I'm leaving. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving my congregants. I'm leaving my religion. I'm leaving my God. I'm leaving everything because of what I heard. I, I heard the Jewish people left Egypt, and this is real, and I'm joining, and I'm repudiating everything that I've stood by till now. Very powerful lesson that, according to some opinions, Yis, the, the Yisro narrative was actually moved out of its location, specifically to put it before the Torah to t- teach us a lesson. We're about to read about the acceptance of the Torah. It's important for us to realize that this is a necessary introduction to Torah. A necessary introduction to the Torah is the story of Yisro, more specifically, Yisro being impacted by what he encountered. We're going to have a Torah. We're going to have Ten Commandments, we have the Sinai, we have the miracles, we're going to have all the laws. But it's given to us humans. Unless we have the Yisro characteristic of hearing and being impacted and being willing, flexible to change, the Torah is going to be of no use to us. You can have all the Torah, great, unbelievable, God's Torah, fantastic. But unless you're willing to take it the last mile and bring it into your heart, like Yisro, it's of no use to you. So if someone doesn't learn the story of Yisro and understand the impact of it, what point, it's not, what, you know, what value is he going to derive from Torah if you're not going to integrate it into your heart? And thus, it's so important for us to learn the story. Do you really think that the Jews could not possibly have their own to figure out this corporate structure that Yisro concocted? I'm sure they could have figured it out. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of a clever people. We need, so, we need Yisro to come in to tell us the story. Of course not. Of course, and the micro figured it out also, right? Certainly. So why are we making this whole big deal about Yisro and, and we're, we're attributing the, the, the system of ju- judicial process to Yisro? All that is a way to make, to, 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 to tell his story and to, to laud his accomplishments and his, uh, his commitment before the Torah episode to teach us the lesson, we have to become a little bit more Yisro-like, to be ready to listen and hear, and Vayishma, to, to, to hear the way Yisro heard, in order to be able to uh, to accept Torah and to have any use and value for it. Now there's another Rashi here, which is uh, interesting, very interesting Rashi here, and the first verse of, of, of this parsha, so chapter 18, verse 1. Yisro, the father of Moshe, the priest of Midian, heard everything that Hashem did to Moshe and to the Jewish people. So it's interesting here that it's it's equating Moshe and the Jewish people. And Rashi invokes the Talmud that says that Moshe is equal to the Jewish people. That's a really strange statement. Moshe is equal to the Jewish people. Uh, and the reason why I, one of the, well, just kind of technically, Moshe is part of the Jewish people, right? Mm-hmm. So Moshe is included, if you look at kind of one side of the scale, Mo, the Jewish people, that includes Moshe as well. How could you possibly technically say that on the other side of the scale, that has just Moshe, it's, well, those are equal? It's a really strange thing. What does this even mean? My grandfather had his way of explaining it. He said that Moshe is kind of the image of the Jewish people. He's like the model. Of the Jewish people. Fine, that's what my grandfather said. I, I want to theorize, I want to posit, I want to suggest that uh, this is really describing Moshe's greatness. We've spoken in the past about the idea of expansion of self, of as someone becomes a greater person, what they're actually doing is breaking down the barriers that separate them from other people. 
You know, we're naturally, we're, we're, we're created with a human body that's designed to cut other people out. Other people are competitors, so to speak. You know, we are ourselves. We only feel our own pain and suffering. The pain of suffering of others, that's their pain. That's not, that's not our pain. The Torah tells us you gotta love your fellow as yourself. On the deepest level, that means is you have to change the definition of yourself. It has to include other people. So if my child has pain, well, because that's actually an extension of myself, I feel the same pain. So the, the mitzvah of love your fellow as yourself, doesn't. it's not a mitzvah that's love-oriented. It's like, uh, uh, let's try to figure out a way to extend our love. It's really yourself-oriented. Let's figure out a way to, to extend yourself if you expand the definition of self to include others beyond yourself, then just like you already love yourself, you'll love yourself once yourself changes. So you remember, we learned about Moshe. Moshe, the first stories we learned about him. Moshe grew up. So the, the Hebrew word for grew up is also the same word of becoming larger. Perhaps what it really means is that Moshe became a leader. A leader is someone who incorporates within him their constituents. So Moshe sees someone suffering and he's, he starts to try to help them. Well, why does he try to help them? Because it's just, he's not, he's not experiencing the suffering of others. He's experiencing the suffering of his expanded self. Well, the Torah is telling us here that Moshe is equal to the Jewish people. It means quite literally. If you looked at Moshe's self, how big was it? It included the entirety of the Jewish people. And Moshe himself, as in the narrow sense of Moshe, was part of the expanded self. So you look at the Jewish people. It's 600,000 men, Plus, you know, uh, you know, plus the women, plus the children, the old people, etc. That's only counting between ages twenty and sixty. So that includes Moshe, of course, and everyone else. You look at Moshe. If you could kind of spiritually look at Moshe, of course, Moshe was one body. But if you could spiritually weigh how how many souls are incorporated in this entity, the answer would be the same as the other side. They're exactly the same. And that, and that's what it's telling us is that Moshe already at this time, he achieved his peak leadership, his peak greatness by becoming already equal to the entirety of the Jewish people. And thus, when Moshe felt the pain of others, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, let me feel your pain. No, let me feel, I'm going to feel my pain. No one feels the pain of others. You feel your own pain. But if you incorporate someone within you, if you expand yourself to include others, then you'll feel their pain. So to love, how do you love your fellow as yourself? How do you do that? You can't change the, the people love themselves. That's inborn. But if you include them within yourself, if you break down the barriers that separate them from you, then you will, by definition, love them because they're part of yourself, just like a parent loves a child. A parent loves a child. Well, what do you mean? If, if they hurt themselves, why should I feel pain? There's someone, oh, no. A child is an extension of, of yourself. You give that, you expand yourself to include others you'll automatically love them as well. Uh, so Yisro arrives with Zipporah and with the his two sons, Moshe's two sons, and they come and they have a celebration when they're already by Sinai. If you actually read the, the verses, it's, it seems clear that it's throwing hints that this is already after Mount Sinai experience, but either way. And Yisro uh, he re- re- gets reintroduced to, to, to Moshe and they hug and kiss and they... Um, they, he tells them the whole stories, uh, all the stories of that happened. And verse 9 is an interesting verse here. Uh, Yisra was delighted and joyous with all the goodness that Hashem did to the Jewish people, and he saved them from the land of Egypt. Now the word 
for joy, rejoiced, vayichad. Vayichad also means someone has like sharp cuts. Um, and Rashi says is that it means that it can, mean, can be understood in two different ways. Amazing Rashi here. That the simple understanding of the verse is that Yisro was so excited. But the Agadic interpretation is that his, his flesh became all goosebumpy. Got all these, all these little kind of ridges in them. Because he was secretly kind of sad about the downfall of Egypt because he himself used to be an Egyptian. And that's why he quotes the Talmud that if you have a, an Egyptian convert, someone who converts from uh, he, his family used to be Egyptian, but he converts becomes Jewish. Fine. Ten generations later, don't make fun of Egyptians. Because it's really hard for someone to kind of change their identity. And if their identity is that, even if it's ten generations ago, they used to be Egyptian, you can't make a kind of a snide comment about the Egyptians, because you'll cause them pain. So Yisro, even though he escaped Egypt, and he disavowed Egypt, and he joined, kind of in the in the recesses of his unconscience, there was a little bit of sadness at the downfall of his uh, previous uh, his previous people. And I think it's, it's an interesting lesson here, uh, at least certainly Rashi invokes an interesting lesson here, that we have to be very careful about the pain of others, of course, that's the fundamental idea, but specifically um, in the realm of, of identity. You know, you, you, know you, you have like kind of the... Uh, uh, the French guy or the Russian guy or whatever, he, started, he made some jokes about whatever. And the Torah seemingly doesn't discount even the deepest feelings that people have. And I was, I'm sure if you were to ask Yisro uh, when he hears these stories, like, what, do you, what are you feeling? He's like, I'm feeling delight. The Torah is able to kind of plumb to the depths of his essence and say that there was a tiny little feeling of sadness as well. And we have to be very careful about that as well in our interactions uh, with other people. So Yisro says that now I know that the Almighty is greater than everything, and uh, he brings sacrifices, and they have a huge party, and they celebrate, and they break bread, and it's all great. The next morning, Moshe, wait, Moshe everyone wakes up, they wake up, and Moshe starts judging the whole people from morning to evening. Yisro doesn't like that. Why are you doing that? It's so inefficient. He says, well, people have questions. What am I supposed to do? I have to answer their questions. So Yisro tells him, it's not good. You'll get worn out. It's too much work. Rather, let me give you some advice. You should be the Supreme Court. You should ask the questions to God, the hardest questions no no one can answer. But you should recruit from the nation strong leaders who fear God, men of truth, People who hate money, because people, judges who love money are, are, are likely to be corrupted. And you should make masters of thousands, masters of hundreds, masters of fifties, and masters of tens. Actually, do the math. Around every eight people would have someone in charge of them. And that's a good ratio. I think today, if you were to figure out how many rabbis are there, you, you probably have for every 800 Jews in America, there's a rabbi. Um, it seems like maybe uh, maybe more is appropriate. Uh, they're going to judge the people at all times, and every small matter they bring, uh, every small matter they deal with themselves, every large matter they bring to Moshe. And everyone loves the idea. Moshe implements it, and Moshe selects justices, 
And every thousand people had a leader, every hundred people, every fifty people, and every ten people had a leader as well. And they judged the nation at all times, and Moshe only got the more complicated questions, but the easier questions were answered. So that's, uh, that's the introduction to the parsha. And then we, we meet in, uh, in chapter 19, uh, we don't meet, we, uh, we settle, the Jewish people settle in the Sinai Desert, and in verse 2, they encamp uh, opposite the mountain. Now, if you actually read this in Hebrew, you get a little bit more nuance. Because in verse 2, uh, in Hebrew, the um, verbs have uh, plural or individual um, suffixes. Um, so, like you would say, and he encamped for an individual, or they encamped for a collective, for plural. Now, the, the word that's used over here in verse 2 is Vayichan Sham Yisrael Negadahar. Vayichan is an individual. So Rashi already jumps on this. Rashi is always going to jump on those things. And Rashi says, he asks him the question, why is the entire nation, a nation of millions of people, described with a verb, a singular verb? He says that at this time, the Jewish people were like one man with one heart. There was some sort of national unity that... Uh, that was developed before or at Sinai, uh, and thus the Torah could say that they, when they encamped on the mountain, they were like one people. And this is another introduction to Torah, that we flourish as a nation and we fulfill our destiny as a nation when we're united. And, and Torah is the edifice built upon the nation that lives in unity. And there's a midrash that says that you could uh, look at, like, uh, imagine you would have uh, two boats that are right next to each other. And on top of the boats, on top of both boats, you build a a structure, a house. And uh, the boats are not attached, but they're going side by side. As long as they're side by side, the house will not collapse. Whereas if they do separate, then the house will fall. Uh, so too, like what we're about to create, the tremendous ev- edifice of Torah that's going to be the guiding uh, essence, essentially, of the Jewish people from then on, it really hinges upon the Jewish people being, you know, and he encamped by the mountain, the individual, Jewish nation, one man and one purpose that is going to allow the Torah to flourish. And we see this, of course, throughout history that our connection to Torah mirrors our connection to our brethren. We're connected to our people. We're unified. We try to become more like one person and one purpose and one heart. Then we're much more likely to have the Torah flourish and survive. This is the run-up to the uh, to Sinai. So Moshe goes up to God and God calls up calls to him from the mountain and he instructs him, so should you speak so should you say to the house of Jacob, and you shall relate to the people of Israel. So he uses different verbs to describe how he should talk to the house of Israel, house of Jacob, and how he should speak to the sons of Israel. And this, uh, uh, famously, the um, all girls Jewish school are called Bet Yaakov or Beis Yaakov. 
And the reason why is because this is a reference, the house of Jacob is a reference to the way Moshe was instructed to talk to the women. Interestingly, he was told to talk to the women one way and the men another way. So my grandfather wrote uh, two, well, he wrote a lot of books, but he wrote two pamphlets given to brides and grooms before before their wedding. There was a problem. There wasn't there wasn't so much there wasn't sufficient premarital lesson. I think that there's a problem which exists very broadly in the world where people don't get education of how to be good spouses. And that's very likely going to contribute to them not being good spouses if they're not educated how to do it. So that's a problem. Um, and my grandfather tried to remedy this by writing a pamphlet, uh, a guide for chasanim, for grooms. He wrote one for the men. And he wrote a guide for the women. If you actually read them, compare them, you would not imagine that these are written by the same person. Uh, the way he starts, when he was very careful that the boys shouldn't read the girls one, the girls shouldn't read the boys one, because they're, they're different messages. But the way he starts off with the boys starts off like, an, like a dialogue format. So tell me, uh, Mr. Groom, how do you, like, what's the foundations of your marriage going to be? He says, well, uh, we're going to love each other, and it's going to be wonderful. He says, well, what if you stop loving each other? Well, I don't know. What, what, what do you mean? Well, what if you start hating each other? Like, well, you're steering me. You know, what's going on? He says, no, I have to understand. Well, what is the, what is going to ensure that your marriage is going to be resolute and strong and withstand all the vicissitudes of life? He says, I don't know. You tell me. And then he tells him. Spoiler alert. He tells him what it is. Like, what actually is the foundation that ensures that the marriage will, will be resolute? The girls, it's much more flowery, much more nice. And this is, this is the famous source that says, you have to speak uh, differently to men. And to men. The men are motivated by very vastly different things than the women are. Actually, if you look at the word v'tadid, v'tadid l'bnei Yisrael, tadid, which means you should say, like hagadath, say over. But the word gid also means a sinew, which is something that kind of is like, it's like a rope. It's like a rope. Yes, yeah, like a muscle, a rope. And he says, for the men, you gotta to speak to them things that are as, as tight, as, as, as stiff as a rope. That's what he tells Moshe. Uh, that the men need to kind of hear it over their head. They need to be bludgeoned until they listen. Mm-hmm. Whereas the women have to be very, very soft and, and they'll, uh, they'll rebel if you go, if you go strong. Okay. So what's, what's this message that Moshe is sending to the people? You saw that that I did to Egypt. And this is interesting because the nation, that's going to have the Torah is the same people that actually saw the miracles that are going to kickstart this whole process, the whole Exodus, and they, they saw it themselves. It's not some sort of tradition that they got from their forefathers. It's not some sort of, uh, he's not trying to convince them. He's not, he's not lobbying them to accept something that they don't have firsthand experience with. They themselves saw. And this is one of the critical distinctions between our religion and every other religion, wherein the nation themselves, the nation that accepts the laws, is the same ones that get the revelation. Every religion has within it two parts. It has the revelation and it has the instruction. God comes and appears to whomever and tells them these are the laws and tell the laws to some other other people. So Muhammad or Joseph Smith, they all follow the same model, right? They have the experience themselves. And we have to accept their word, their account of those revelations 
and if to believe them. And then they say, okay, well, this is what God, this is what the angel is, they told me this, and here's the laws, here's the Book of Mormon, here's the Quran, here's whatever religious text, that's the dogma of the nation. This is comes from that source. It's interesting here that the Torah points this out, that you yourselves, this whole Exodus process, that has all these miracles and this supernatural way of life, that is experienced by the same people, the nation, not just the individual, who is going to get the laws. And the greatest revelation is going to be the one that, go, that they're going to have in chapter 20. That's the Sinai experience. But Moshe uh, is instructed to tell the people, before anything, like we're right now going to seal the bond of the Jewish people and their creator and form the religion. It's important to note that the people themselves are the ones who are going to get the uh, experiences and revelations, and they themselves are going to get the, the laws as well. And he tells them in verse 5 and 6, what, what are the stakes over here? And now, if you accept, if you hear, if you will listen to my voice and hearken my voice, and you will guard my covenant, you will be for me a treasure of all people, because I control the whole world, and you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the Jewish people. So this is the, the lesson. The lesson is, is that you guys yourselves saw all the miracles, and now you have the option to accept Torah. If you accept the Torah, you listen to my voice, you'll guard my covenant, then you will be for me a treasured people from all the nation, i.e. you'll be the chosen people, you'll be the chosen people of God, and our destiny is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is the ultimate destiny of the Jewish people, provided that we uh, accept the Torah. Uh, what this means is that it's an entire, normally a, a priest is a member of the clergy. It's someone who's separate from, separate from the populace. Here it's an entire kingdom of priests. It's a whole nation of priests. It means that it's almost that our nation accepts upon itself if we have Torah, we're going to be the priests. Well, who's going to be the populace? That's going to be the whole world. Our nation is going to be elevated as the entire nation, the entirety of the nation, that we're all going to be educators. If we accept the Torah, we're going to be God's people, God's ambassadors, God's treasured people, and we're going to be a nation of priests that's going to impact the whole world, provided that we accept the Torah. We know the mighty can foist this upon us. It's interesting that he's asking us to accept it. If you accept it, right, then, if, it's an if-then preposition. And the truth is, is that the Almighty eventually is going to force us into it as well. But it's, it's important to know we're going to have these, the, this dual relationship with Torah. On one hand, we're going to be, we're going to opt into it. On the other hand, we're going to be foist, it's going to be foisted upon us. We're going to be forced into it as well. You know, a, a Jew today, we're born handcuffed. The decisions that impact us today have already been made thousands of years ago. We're Jews and we're, we're bound to the covenant whether we like it or not. But it's also interesting that there is a realm of acceptance that's, that's necessary. My grandfather would famously say, famously, he would invoke the famous idea that there's a difference between a king and a dictator. On Rosh Hashanah, we talk about, we talk about God being the king, a melech, versus a moshel. Moshel also has total control. The only difference is, is that 
the nation doesn't necessarily promote the dictator. The dictator just uses brute force. God controls us whether we like it or not. But there's an intimate relationship that we can develop provided we accept God and his mandate, i.e. Torah. So what this is doing, it's not just saying, well, you want Torah or not, do you not want Torah? We're getting Torah regardless. But what the Almighty is doing here is extending an offer to be close to you, to be, you'll be the treasured people, I'll be close to you, I'll, you you'll be my uh, favorite of all the nations, because you're going to opt in. And by opting in, you're going to foster a relationship between you, the nation, and 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 God. Uh, additionally, verse five it, it's a, it has a beginning and there's a progression. If you accept, if you hear and hearken the Torah, and you guard the covenant, then you will be a treasured people. You'll have all the you know, kind of the the benefits will come afterwards. So Rashi, very famous Rashi here. If you accept upon yourself now, then it'll be blissful later. Why? Because the kol hatchalot kashot, all the the beginning is always more difficult than the end. And this, I think, is um, I think it's a it's a critical insight in kind of psychology, but certainly with our relationship to Torah. We know that in life, the most critical behavior characteristic to determine someone's success in failure in whatever field is their capacity to delay gratification. You know, if someone wants to become a physician, a neurosurgeon, well, that's great. You get to live in a big house and have a fancy car and have a, a nanny. It's really wonderful, right? But there's a lot of hard work that goes into it prior. And it's almost exactly proportional the more you invest and the more hard work you put on the front end, that's the bigger the payoff is on the back end. Now, what's this payoff that we're talking to the back end over here? We're going to be God's treasured people. That's the greatest payoff you could imagine. It's a guarantee of security. Think about that. We're the only nation that has, you know, under such conditions, survived. Why do we survive? Because of this. We're God's treasured people. And uh, that means that it's not always going to be easy, but we will always survive. And we will always eventually flourish. But that is predicated upon the hard work at the beginning and the delayed gratification. And, you know, it's another lesson before Torah. We have to realize that Torah is not easy. It's not, you know, let's have the bliss and the joy and the monastic uh, sitting on, uh, on uh, a mountaintop. It's not that. It's, uh, it's hard work. But the payoff is commensurate to the hard work. The payoff comes afterwards. You know, the Jewish people, think about them. They're going to be intimidated. When they get a Torah with so many myriads of details, so much minutia, so much work, so, so demanding upon us. You've got to study Torah day and night. There's a great story in the Talmud uh, where the student asked the rabbi, is he allowed to study Greek philosophy? And he said, yes. But when are you allowed to study it? It's, the Torah says, you study Torah day and night. So you study, for sure you should study Greek philosophy. When it's not day, it's not night. That's when you study, that's when you study Greek philosophy. <laughs> but that's the attitude. It's, it's, it's really demanding. It's, 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 you know, there's, it's a, it's a whole life commitment and all day and all night. It's, it's the Torah can govern the person from morning to night. And even how do you sleep? Everything's covered by Torah. It's very exhaustive. It's very expansive. 
and it's intimidating. And we're told here is that the, the, what what's the end game? The end game is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, be God's treasured people. And if we recognize that, we could be willing to give up something on the front end with our awareness that our dedication now is going to pay off big time later on. So the Ramam, he's a very he's a pragmatist, right? He was very, right. I mean, Ramam was rational. Ramam and the laws of Torah study. He he says. Listen, you, you got to make a living. You can't rely on the government or uh, the largesse of other people. You got to work hard. But you have to study Torah. So what's the happy medium? She says, well, you have 12 hours a day to work, besides for prayer and, and eating dinner with your family and sleeping. You have about 12 hours of activity during the day. So nine hours you study Torah and three hours you work. And that's nice. And by the way, I actually saw a study that said the average American works for two hours and 59 minutes a day. And then there's five hours like watching TV. And then there's just like surfing the internet and Facebook, all that. So you get rid of all that other time. You just do your three hours that you're doing anyhow of, of, of uninterrupted three hours of work. And you just get rid of all the, you know, all the white noise and the white space. And you study Torah. Beautiful, happy medium. Okay, so verse 9 here is a very critical verse because verse 9 is going to describe the purpose of the Sinai experience. I want to read this carefully. Hashem said to Moshe, Behold, I come to you in the thickness of, cl- of the cloud so that the people will hear as I speak to you and they will also believe in you forever. So it's interesting here. The purpose of the Sinai experience that we're going to, that we're going to read about in a few verses is that the people will hear as God speaks to Moshe and forever they will believe in Moshe. It's almost that Moshe is having a conversation with God, but there's a wiretap on that conversation that the people are listening in upon it. They're experiencing this level of prophecy alongside Moshe. And that is the, that is the purpose of the, of the Ten Commandments and the Sinai experience. And that will ensure that they will forever believe in Moshe. So I want to read the Rambam here. It's a very important Rambam to understand this idea. And this is from chapter eight of the laws of the foundations of Torah. And where he, in chapter seven, he describes prophecy in general, how it works. How do you get it? and the differences between Moshe's prophecy and the prophecy of everyone else. And he makes a critical lesson that is a little bit counterintuitive. And he says, he starts off, Moshe, the people did not believe him, people did not believe in Moshe for the miracles that he did. So you said he did a lot of miracles, right? All those miracles um, were not the reason why the people believed in Moshe. Why? Because someone who believes in miracles they could still kind of doubt, was it done with slave hand? Like, uh, was it done with some sort of incantations? Rather, all the miracles that Moshe did was all utilitarianistic. They were all done for a reason. There was, there was a need that needed to be filled. Uh, not to prove Moshe's credentials. So, for example, the people were surrounded by the Egyptians... So Moshe split the sea. Uh, they needed, uh, obviously Moshe didn't do it, but Moshe kind of was the steward for it. They needed food because people needed to eat or else they would die. So he, we have to have the manna. We need 
to drink, so he strikes the rock, and there's water. Later on, we've got Korach. Korach starts to rebel, and the earth opens up and swallows up Korach and all his people. All the miracles are because there's a need, there's a rebellious contingency, swallow them up. There's, there's need for food, for water, for miracles. All those are based upon needs. Pharaoh needs to be humbled, we'll have to give him the, ten, the templates. All those were not done to prove Moshe's credentials as a prophet. So why do the Jewish people believe him? Because at the, at the Mount Sinai revelation that our eyes saw, not based upon someone else's testimony, and our ears heard, and not via someone else, the fire and the sounds and the torches, and Moshe approaches the, the cloud and the voice of God speaks to him, and we hear Moshe, Moshe, God speaking to Moshe, Lechem Orlehem, go tell them such and such. And that's what the verse tells us, that God speaks to Moshe face to face. And he quotes all the verses. And that, and he quotes our verse that says that's the reason why the Jewish people believed Moshe, because of the Sinai experience. And the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to establish Moshe as a verified prophet Thus, when Moshe gives the Jewish people the rest of the Torah, they know that he is a bona fide prophet because they experience prophecy alongside of him. It's almost as if the people are temporarily elevated to an unnatural level that they're not really holding by. They're not really, they didn't earn it. This level of prophecy, and they experience prophecy alongside Moshe, and thenceforth they know that Moshe's prophecy is legitimate. Thus, the Ten Commandments are not necessarily about teaching us ten laws, because we have a lot of laws we need to learn. Should we learn the law from God? We should learn, should it be the 613 commandments? All of them we should learn from God? Maybe yes. But once we establish that Moshe is telling us the unadulterated word of God, then it's possible for, for us to say, once that's established, then essentially we are learning the 613 uh, mitzvahs from God directly. Moshe is just acting as a conduit, not contributing any of his own, uh, of his own commentary. But how do we know that Moshe is a real prophet? The miracles, well, miracles, that, that was based upon needs. And plus miracles, there's always room for some doubt and skepticism. It's always possible to have doubt and skepticism. But prophecy, the way that people are going to experience it, that's going to be incontrovertible evidence that Moshe is a prophet of God who God speaks face to face in verbal instruction. And therefore, even though people are not worthy of it, and they cannot absorb it, and you'll see at the end of this piece, partially, they say, stop, we don't want to hear it, it's too much. Still, this had to be done in order to establish that the rest of Torah comes indeed from, from God via Moshe directly. So the next bunch of verses, Moshe, uh, Moshe is told to tell the people, uh, prepare yourself, sanctify yourself, clean your clothing, have three days of separation, make all these fences around the mountain, uh, that no one should go up, no one should touch the mountain, the mountain is going to be, this is going to be a touch point of the physical, the spiritual, the physical mountain that you could, by the way, go visit today. It's still a physical mountain, but at that time, it was, it became a spiritual mountain. And that meant that if anyone touched it, it was like sticking your finger into the outlet. It just, you know, instead of 120 volts, there was 120 million volts. You would, uh, volts. You would just die instantly. Everyone's getting ready, and the Sinai, uh, the mountain is full of smoke and full of fire. And the entire mountain starts convulsing and shaking. There's a long 
and unending sound of the shofar. The shofar is getting stronger. Normally, blow a shofar gets weaker. It starts to taper off. It gets stronger uh, on the mountaintop. And God calls out to Moshe, come up to the mountain. Of course, people are hearing this as well. And God says to Moshe, go back, tell the people not to touch the mountain, because if they do, everyone's going to die. And tell the people to have all these fences that people shouldn't come, shouldn't approach. And then Moshe goes back up again, and we have the Ten Commandments. And chapter 20, verse 1 through verse 14, are the Ten Commandments. And the role of the Ten Commandments... Like we said, the, 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 the stated goal of them, of course, is to t- teach the people Torah, but it's the, the, the most important thing is to establish Moshe's credentials as a prophet of God, and that way for the rest of the Torah, people know that it came from God directly. Additionally, the commentaries note that the Ten Commandments is a highly concentrated version of all of Torah. Rabbi Sa'ad Yagon, one of the Gaonim, so that's essentially the, the Jewish leaders from the about roughly the year 500 to the year 1000. Rabbi Sa'ad Yagon, who wrote the first Siddur, he wrote the first book of, of, of prayer, he writes a poem in which he incorporates the Ten Commandments and he delineates which mitzvahs of the 613 fall under which categories. These are all ten categories. Moreover, the first two of the Ten Commandments, the ones that we're going to hear from God directly, because the people are going to say, this is too much for us, you speak to us, don't let God speak to us. The first two essentially incorporate the entirety of Torah, because the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, I am Hashem your God, who has taken the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. That's the first commandment, uh, which is to believe that God exists. What kind of God? The God who took you out of the land of Egypt. It's important to note that if someone believes that God is the creator but not involved in people's life, they don't believe the first of the Ten Commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments says that God created, yes, he is in control, he has all the powers, but he also took us out of the land of Egypt, which means that he is involved with us, with us humans, to manage our affairs. We're in Egypt and he takes us out of the land, uh, land of Egypt from, uh, from slavery. And the second one is not to have any foreign gods, any other gods in my present. Don't bow down to them. Don't make an image of them. Don't worship the heavens or the earth or the moon or the sun, or the constellations. Don't, don't prostrate yourself before them. Don't worship them. I am a jealous God who visits sins of fathers upon children to the third and fourth generations, provided that the children follow the ways of the fathers and shows kindness for thousands of generations for those who love me and observe my commandments. Um, now, these first two of the Ten Commandments are the ones given to us by God, and the reason is because they essentially incorporate everything. All mitzvos are acts that we do as acts of faith, because if, by definition, a mitzvah is an, is an act instructed to us by God, thus our fulfillment of the mitzvah is our tacit acknowledgement that God exists and is in control of everything. Additionally, when someone, uh, idolatry is to place God not at the top of our priorities. Because idolatry is to say there's something that has more power than God, is greater than God. And that's when I choose that over God. So what the second mitzvah essentially is telling us is that God has to be atop our priorities list. Now, when someone does any sin, whatever the sin may be, it could be a sin of, 
Uh, the Torah told us last week, when you make a Pesach offering, don't break the bone. It's a mitzvah. It doesn't seem to be oriented at all in matters of theology. But if someone does break the bone to suck out the marrow of the pastoral offering, what they're saying is that God's instruction doesn't matter to me. Well, how does God's instruction not matter to you? It must be that you don't necessarily place God as the highest priority, because if you did, you'd follow what he says. Thus, in essence, every single sin, every single transgression, every single one of the 365 things we're told not to do, they are also under the parameters of idolatry because at its core, it is rejecting God as the ultimate power. Thus, the first two of the Ten Commandments are given to us by God because a very highly concentrated version of all of Torah was given to the Jewish people directly. And then, over the ensuing 611 mitzvos, we're told out the details of how to actualize the faith, on one hand, in the positive sense, and the opposite of that, to, re- to reject idolatry in the negative sense, and that's fleshed out in more detail through Moshe. The Talmud does say, Torah tzivalonu Moshe, Torah was given to us by Moshe, that's a verse in the end of Deuteronomy. The gematria of Torah is 611. Because Moshe gave us 611, and God gave us the other two out of 613. Interesting little way to remember that. Okay, so that's the first two mitzvahs. Uh, the next one is not to uh, say God's name in vain. We don't swear in God's name necessarily. We have a certain seriousness with regards to um, uh, God. Remember the Shabbos. This is from verse 8 uh, through verse 11. This is actually what we say in the morning Kiddush. I said it yesterday. Remember the Shabbos. You work for seven days, do all your work. On the seventh day is for God. Don't do any work. Not you, not your son, not your daughter, not your slave, not your maidservant. By the way, the slave and the maidservant are actually Jews. We'll get to that uh, slavery next week. Not your animals, uh, not the converts. Everyone is required to observe the Shabbos because when someone observes the Shabbos, they attest to God creating the world in six days and resting and ceasing to create on the seventh day. And in essence, the converse is true as well. Someone who does not observe the Shabbos is also calling into question God's creation of the world. Honor your father and mother. We're told to honor our father before our mother because we're more likely to honor our father than our mother. Not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to kidnap, not to be a false witness. And lastly, not to covet your fellow's house, his wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, anything that belongs to your fellow. And there's an interesting kind of thread here being drawn from beginning to end. We're told at the beginning, have faith. Faith in God, don't reject God with idolatry. And in essence, that incorporates everything. And to get in just an idea of how broad or how profound the expectation of faith is, you got to look at the end of the Ten Commandments. And when you read about thou shalt not covet, it's a little bit of a hard thing to fathom. To desire something that seems to be that it's something that's not in our capacity to change. We could change how we act upon desires, but the desires are not one that we, we don't bring the desires onto ourselves. The desires are... It seems to us, at least initially, that they're fixed. But 
how we choose to respond to this, do we pursue the desires, and how we pursue the desires, that's our choice. The Torah is telling us, do not desire your fellow's his house, his car, his wife, his odds, all his stuff. And this is the ultimate manifestation of faith. When someone has faith at such a root, basic level, that they really believe that God is the master and controller of everything, then they'll recognize that everything that I have is given to me by God specifically for the purpose of use, utilizing it for good. And everything my neighbor has, that's given to him by God. And that's not mine at all. Thus, when someone really has faith to the degree the Torah imagines that we can get to, that would manifest itself in not even desiring what someone else has. Just like it's, you know, we don't desire to grow wings and start flying around like a bird, because that's beyond our capacity. That's not who we are. We are humans. And that's, we kind of, that's our physiology, and we don't, we don't imagine to change that. If the faith becomes physiological, becomes so basic that it becomes who we are and how we see ourselves, it will be manifested in that we will not desire that that belongs to someone else. And the people are seeing the sounds and they're having this amazing prophetic experience and they're freaking out and they're, they're cowering away and they tell Moshe, you gotta stop this. We can't handle this. We're going to die. You speak to us. The Talmud tells us that every time, that every word that God said, the people were blown 12 miles away and they had to be brought back by angels. And then God would speak again and they were blown 12 miles away again as well. Um, and that had to be revived and brought back to life. This was not a normal experience. It, it was, they weren't designed or they weren't worthy. They weren't... Uh, appropriate. It wasn't, it wasn't an appropriate experience for them, but they had to have it, and therefore they had it. But then they said, too much, we cannot handle this. You speak to that, speak to us. Moshe tells them, don't be scared. The Almighty wants to uh, elevate us so we should have the, the God's fear upon us. We shouldn't sin. People go far away. Moshe approaches the mountain again. And the story ends with a, a recap of what happened. Hashem tells Moshe, go tell the Jewish people, you saw that from the heavens I spoke to you, and we get three mitzvos. And the mitzvos, if you examine the mitzvos, they are very subtle mitzvos that are very similar to the three cardinal sins. We're told not to have idolatry, murder, and adultery, rape. Those are the three cardinal sins. If you look at these three mitzvos, we get right afterwards they are very subtle versions of those three. So the first one is not to make any images of gold and silver. That's number one, which is related to not to worship them, of course. Make an altar of earth where you would bring sacrifices. But how do you build the altar? Don't use a knife to build it. They wouldn't use, they wouldn't employ metal weaponry to cut the stone because we have to be so distant from murder that we don't even use the stone, we don't even use the tool that's associated with murder to build the altar. And don't put steps on it. Because when, when there's steps, it's likely uh, that it exposes more of someone's under, uh, the flesh from under their garments. Therefore, making it in a ramp. That's kind of distancing us from uh, immorality. 
And next week, we will be learning about all the various laws, civil law, and essentially the rest of the Torah is going to be Moshe spelling out the details of all these laws. I want to once again stress, and the Torah makes this, it, it stresses it beforehand and afterwards, and again we're going to see it in Deuteronomy, that the people that received the Torah, who got the instructions, were the same people who visualized with their own eyes the prophecy. They themselves had the prophecy. That's verse number 19. And we're the only nation that even makes this claim of national revelation. No other nation even claims it. Not only were the ones that actually happened to. No one else claims it. And the reason why no one else claims it, because unless it actually happened, it's not possible to falsify. There's no way to convince a nation of millions of people they saw something they they didn't see. And this is, we should always kind of feel comforted by the veracity of our faith because of this experience. Our faith began even with the claim of national prophecy, and that cannot be matched by any other nation. And the question is, if we're, you know, we're not the great, the greatest at marketing, like we said, yet, uh, somehow a nation founded upon this claim flourished. And it's a big question to people who question legitimacy of Torah. How did, how were people duped into believing this? into accepting this if it wasn't true. A lot of people today, the revisionists, like to question the legitimacy and historicity and veracity and accuracy of the Torah. And the one of the greatest questions to them is, how do people accept this work as the work of God? And we know people did accept it. People still do accept it. But how did people start accepting it if it did not happen as it claims to have happened, that the Torah given, uh, initially was given to people who experienced these miracles, and especially the miracle of the Revelation. If I come a thousand years later and say, I'm giving you a new Torah, the Torah itself says that's not true, because the Torah was given to those people. So it's a great and very difficult question. There's no answer to the question. I would like if someone can suggest one. I'd be very interested in it. Um, but how do you convince a nation that there were millions of people that experienced it and they got the Torah if it didn't happen? And that's, I think, a good way to end uh, this narrative. I look forward to seeing everyone next week.